There are a lot of things I remember about being in fourth grade. My teacher was named Mrs. Chandler, and she was tough, but also the coolest. We had multiple class pets, including a hedgehog that every student took a turn bringing home to care for over a weekend. I got really into horseback riding that year and wrote what I was pretty sure was a full-on novel about a big sister who gets her little sister involved with equine therapy. I did my big end-of-the-year research project about Eleanor Roosevelt and was very disappointed that my classmates weren't as interested in the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire-inspired game I designed to go along with my presentation. I faked my eye test just so that I could get glasses like my best friend. I was obsessed with maps and had an Atlas-themed birthday party. But those are tales from my fourth grade experience. Today, our focus is on Peter Hatcher, his brother Fudge, and Judy Bloom's beloved 1972 novel, Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. I have received dozens of requests for this book over the years, and I am excited to finally bring you this discussion. For a little context, Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing was the first in the Fudge series and introduces readers to the Hatchers, protagonist Peter, his rowdy little brother Fudge, and their well-meaning and exhausted parents. This book is essentially a long account of Fudge's antics, almost all of which annoy, inconvenience, and generally irritate Peter. On episode 205, you'll hear my guests and I chat about many of these antics, along with Peter's reactions to them. We discuss the sibling dynamics in our own families and how we do or do not relate to the Hatchers. We touch on the way parenting dynamics, and specifically fatherhood, were portrayed in the 70s, rave about Fudge and Peter's mom, and compare notes on the frustrations of group projects. We also lament some moments of fat phobia and wonder why anyone, even Fudge, would eat a live turtle. Seriously though, why? My guest today is Carola Lovering, the author of Tell Me Lies, Too Good to Be True, and Can't Look Away. Carola attended Colorado College, and her work has appeared in New York Magazine, W Magazine, National Geographic, Outsider, and Yoga Journal, among other publications. Her novel, Tell Me Lies, is currently being adapted into a television series for Hulu. Carola lives in Connecticut with her husband and son and is expecting a daughter this summer. Find her on Instagram at Carola T. Lovering. I've been seeing Can't Look Away basically everywhere over the last few months, so it was a real treat to have Carola on the pod this week, especially since I learned that she is a fellow older sister who could jump on board with so many of my calls for big sibling justice in our conversation about Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. Want to learn more about the podcast or about me or my personal reading or my dog? Instagram is the best place to do it. Find the show there at SSRPod. We are also on Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. I know you hear this from all of your favorite podcasters, but I'm going to say it anyway, and I hope you'll forgive me. Sharing the show is one of the very best things you can do to demonstrate your support for our work. This is especially true for independent creators like me. Help get the word out by sharing a screenshot of this episode to your Instagram story or by posting a five-star rating or review to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If there are people you'd like to see on the show, tweet at them. Small gestures like this make a big difference. Becoming an SSR patron is a slightly bigger gesture, but you can do it for as little as a dollar per month, which still makes it pretty doable. At each tier of support on Patreon, you'll receive unique exclusive rewards. Membership in the SWR Shit We Read book club is probably the most popular, 
but there are plenty of others to explore at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or when you go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. I am so grateful to all of the patrons listening now and would love to continue growing that community. It is a really special group of readers that has made a huge impact on the show over the last few years. Summer is coming to an end, and it's time to check those final summer reads off your TBR. Audiobooks are a great way to do this, since they allow you to multitask. Libro.fm is the perfect place to find your next great audiobook. It's a great alternative to Audible because it allows you to support independent bookstores instead of a giant corporation. We all rely on Amazon for a lot of things, but since audiobooks are delivered to your phone immediately no matter where you buy them, this is a perfect place to make the switch. The audiobooks you get will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRpodcast when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. If you prefer to read physical copies of books, I encourage you to support independent bookstores through bookshop.org. Shop the SSR storefront at www.bookshop.org slash shop slash SSRpod for my curated book lists or anything else on your list. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Carola. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited because it's a Judy Bloom day and we love a Judy Bloom day here on SSR. And it's a fudge day. So it's like a very specific kind of Judy Bloom day. Yes. Definitely. I This book took me back to reading all of the fudge books in, I don't even know, I guess it was elementary school, middle school, but it was such a throwback. So it was really fun to to dive back into the world of, of fudge and Judy Bloom And the Hatchers. Well, let's start there. Talk to me a little bit about why this was your pick for the podcast. Any other details that you might remember about your young life with Judy Bloom and with fudge? I think when we were first emailing and, and you know, you gave me some book ideas, I asked about Judy Bloom because Judy Bloom was just like the author of my youth. I mean, she, I really think Judy Bloom, Beverly Cleary, like Roald Dahl, those three really got me into reading when I was younger. And I have especially like fond memories of reading Judy Bloom books, like the fudge book, certainly, but also Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. That was one of my favorites. And so when you suggested Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing, I was like, oh, that's perfect. I would I would love to go back and read that, especially now, because I feel like that book is really for young readers, like elementary school age. And now that I'm a mom, like I don't have kids in elementary school, but I have I have a son who's two and then I'm expecting my second in a few weeks. And so I thought it would be really interesting and fun to go back and read 
that book like now as a mom and knowing that I'll probably relate to the mom character more than Peter who at the like obviously when I read the book in elementary school I related to Peter and his experience as a fourth grader and all that's fraught about that but yeah I just thought it would be I thought it'd be fun to to go back and read now from a new lens yeah that makes a lot of sense and I'm curious to talk more about how you read this now that you're anticipating having a multi-child home, because that's really what this book is about, is like negotiating the dynamics of a family as it gets bigger and as kids grow up. So I'm looking forward to digging into that with you more. So I think it's relevant to this conversation to talk about siblings. Carla, do you have any siblings and where are you in the order, if so? Yes, so I do. I'm the oldest of three. I have a younger brother who's He's about two years younger than me, a little less. And then my sister is five and a half years younger. So like Peter Hatcher, I'm an oldest child, which like I always say, I, I think it's I think it's hard to be the oldest. I mean, I obviously don't have another perspective and I don't know what, like, what are, do you have siblings? Where are you in your lineup? I'm also an okay. oldest, so <laughs> we can relate and, and we can commiserate with Peter. I think it's hard to be the oldest too. I think every, I'm sure every role in a family has its own specific challenges, but I'm here to campaign for the oldest children in every family that it's really hard. Yes, I'm with you. And I still tell my parents that I'm like, it was hard being the oldest. And it's still, you know, it still is in some ways, like you're the one who's sort of the experiment you have to like do things first and and test your parents and push their limits. And, you know, I think even as, even as an adult now, like just being the first one in my family to get married and to like introduce a son-in-law into the picture. I mean, there's just a lot that like kind of never stops being, you know, you never stop being like the first one to present a new dynamic. For sure. And I think, and I've talked to other oldests about this, I think that as an oldest, anytime you want to sort of push the boundaries in any way, even if it's not really that big of a deal, but maybe your parents perceive it to be a big deal, they are really upset about it. Or it's like a family meeting kind of situation. Whereas by the time you get to like a youngest sibling, maybe there's a moment of hesitation, but they're like, oh, sure, whatever. You know, I think parents understandably get tired and maybe they realize after watching their oldest child go through things that like, maybe it's not such a big deal. And maybe it's okay if they do that thing that we were so concerned about before. It's just a lot of pressure too. like, I am, I don't even know that I can call myself a recovering perfectionist, because I still am a perfectionist. But I think so much of that comes from being an oldest. And I've done some research about birth order. And it does seem to me like that's kind of a textbook oldest sibling thing that like so many oldest children in a family become perfectionists because there's that pressure placed on them as the first to do all of these things. Yeah, totally. How many younger siblings do you have? So I have kind of a unique situation in that I'm the only I'm the only child of my parents, but I have three younger half sisters who I just refer to as sisters because we, you know, we grew up together and then I have two younger step siblings as well. So I'm the oldest of this blended family of Okay. Seven. I don't know. I lose track. But like Peter, my siblings are significantly younger than I am. So in this book, Peter is nine and Fudge is two, which is a pretty big age gap. Yeah. And my stepsister is five years younger than I am. And then I have a half sister, a sister who's six years younger, one who's eight years younger, and one who's 10 years younger. So I really, I felt for Peter even now as an adult, like it brought me back to a lot of moments when 
I just was like, I feel like my parents are parenting kids at such different ages. And I, I have that perspective now as an adult that that must have been hard. But as a kid, it was really frustrating because I'm sure there's a tendency to like kind of default to what works best for like the youngest, most needy child. And that doesn't necessarily always work for the older sibling. Absolutely. And that's so interesting because... I was sort of thinking about that as I was reading, which is something I didn't, I didn't obviously like clock when I was reading it as, you know, a fourth grader or whatever, but the age gap is pretty significant between Peter and Fudge. I mean, it's like seven years or six and a half years, something like that. And that is, you know, that's substantial. I mean, my sister's five and a half years younger. So I guess that that's not too far off, but like from my standpoint, now as a mom, like my kids are going to be pretty much exactly two years apart. So that feels, I was sort of thinking about that as I was reading some of the scenes, scenes with Peter getting really frustrated with his mom, like, and the way that his mom kind of gives fudge special treatment. And I was thinking, you know, is this going to be something that I experience? I don't know, maybe, but maybe the, maybe the age gap, if it's a little bit bigger is like those issues are a little bit more pronounced. Yeah, in my experience, a lot of what we see in this book as far as Peter's frustrations are pretty specific to that big age gap. A pattern that we see again and again in this book, for example, is that Peter is expected to like participate in different activities or do things that he wouldn't necessarily have done otherwise in order to be a good example for Fudge so that he'll follow his brother's footsteps and like do that thing well or behave properly. Yeah. And I remember doing that and I remember being like, oh, like I'm too old to be doing like whatever this thing is, but understanding that it would be easier for everybody, including me, if I set the example so that my siblings behaved or cooperated or whatever the thing may be. So I do think that's pretty specific to the big age gap. And hopefully it's not something that you'll have to navigate <laughs> in this next stage. <laughs> no, I feel like I've talked to a lot of friends about this recently, you know, that that either have two kids or are thinking about having another baby. Like, I think whatever age gap you have, like, is going to present its own set of challenges. Yeah, I'm sure. So, like, I think, you know, they're probably, I remember and I'm sure this was your experience too, but like with my sister, her being five and a half years younger, like I was really able to help my mom in a lot of ways because I was like a self-sufficient, not self-sufficient, but you know, I was in elementary school. Like I could help my mom like get milk for the baby or hold the baby. And I, I think that when you're a little bit older and you have more of an age gap, like the older sibling can be more helpful as Peter is in the book. Like being an example to fudge in all those ways, even though it's frustrating for him, like he can help his parents out in the, in those ways. And like, if you have, like, I'm basically going to have two babies in my house. So it's not like my two-year-old is going to be able to help me like with the newborn phase, but you know, at the same time, like he won't really have as much, he won't really have as much time to kind of, to kind of like, think what's happening here he'll just be thrown into it yeah I mean I'm sure you've thought about this a lot but I am a little bit concerned that I'm like triggering a wave of anxiety for you about <laughs> having two babies in a couple of weeks no so I, I apologize if that's the case you're not I'm like this it's happening <laughs> yeah you're in it's happening it's yeah. gonna be great so this book was published in 1972 
it was the first in the fudge universe. It was followed by otherwise known as Sheila the Great, Super Fudge, Fudgemania, and Double Fudge. It is worth noting that we have covered otherwise known as Sheila the Great, which is more of like a spinoff than a sequel because it focuses on a character that's adjacent to the Hatcher family. And we did an episode on Super Fudge as well. And I will never forget that episode because we recorded it. Like I remember recording it with the guest and it was very early COVID days and it was very eerie because she was recording in her office. And as we were recording, there was an announcement on the loudspeaker that was basically like, we're sending everybody home. I'll never forget it. It was very creepy. Oh my God. Crazy. Yeah. And I edited that out. So fun behind the scenes insight listeners. I'll link those episodes in the show notes for those who want to go take a look. But this is really like an episodic novel because it tells all of these different antics that happen in the Hatcher family. Most of them are not connected to one another. But I think we should start with the parents before we go through a couple of those antics because I agree with you, Carola. I think that's a fascinating way in. And even though I don't have children, because I am in my early 30s and I know a lot of people who have children and might one day have children, I was very aware of the parents. And I generally love what Judy Bloom does with parents in her novels. It's something that we talk about a lot on the show. And it also is set in a very specific like 70s context. And so some some quirky, strange, uncomfy things come up there. And I think we should just talk about Fudge and Peter's mom first. I know you mentioned that she was especially interesting to you this time around. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? When Fudge would sort of break down and like have his temper tantrums and not want to eat or not want to do something like I very much related to the mom because my son does stuff like that. So I find that I just find that in general now, like as as a new mom consuming content, whether it's a book or a show or a movie that I might have watched when I was younger, like I now relate to the parents much more, which is which is kind of funny. But I thought it was an interesting and I don't know if this is what you meant by like, the 70s dynamic, but I thought it was I thought it was an interesting dynamic between Fudge and Peter's mom and dad. Yeah, a little bit antiquated in terms of the dad being kind of clueless about parenting. Totally. I remember there was this that one of the chapters when the mom goes, she leaves for the weekend and goes to Boston to visit her sister when she her sister has a baby and she leaves the dad in charge of the kids. And Peter makes a comment. I like even took a picture of it on my phone because I thought it was so funny. Like Peter makes a comment, like, my dad doesn't know anything about childcare or taking care of children. Like he doesn't know where the pots and pans are kept in the kitchen. And I thought that that was funny and like just something that would not be in a in a book written today because i think that that notion that dads are like so clueless about what's going on and like never change diapers and don't know their way around the kitchen and like are not involved in parenting is kind of an antiquated idea and now like dads are much more hands on yeah it felt very much like that old thing of like, oh, dad's babysitting. Yeah. Like, oh, who's my da- who's babysitting? It's dad. But like, no, dad's not <laughs> babysitting. Dad's just being your dad. And yes, that was a chapter that I noticed that sort of antiquated vibe in. And even more than Peter being aware of how clueless his dad is, Peter's mom like privately says to Peter, like, you know how dad is. Like, he doesn't know what he's doing. He really is going to count on you to help. Which I thought was interesting because it's like, In the context of this book, child rearing is 
not the domain of a grown man, but like it certainly is the domain of a young boy like Peter because he spends all of this time with his mom. And it's it's just kind of strange to me that like there was this clear demarcation between like, quote, women's work, men's work, but then also like what is suitable for younger boys and girls to be consumed with. And of course, like this is a very heteronormative binary conversation. And that is the world in which the hatchers are functioning in Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they do kind of have this, you know, you can picture their apartment like on, I think it's on the Upper West Side, right near Central Park. They're definitely like a very like heteronormative <laughs> New York City family. I, I thought that was interesting to kind of, to look back on like just now as as a parent and now like just in this day and age to to think about the way that, parenting has changed in the way that like I mean but even even my dad and when I was growing up in you know the 90s like he was he was very hands-on but I think when you know when my mom will talk about like her parents it does seem like her dad was a little bit more hands-off and that's just kind of a vibe I get from that generation is that there was very much the mom domain and then like the dads were at work and so it it was interesting to read that book, like written, it, I mean, it was written 50 years ago, which is wild. And things are not, the landscape is just not the same. Yeah, I certainly don't think that the Hatchers are unusual by 1972 standards. It's just wild to read it now and just be reminded of what it was like. And yeah, our parents' generation, my mom was 10 in 1972. And I think that I think that Peter's dad like doesn't necessarily do himself any favors either because when their mom does go away and he is left to quote babysit them for the weekend like he kind of messes everything up and there are even more fudge antics and it was kind of cute because after he messes everything up and like they're preparing for mom to come back he's like we'll have we'll have like a little secret and Peter's so excited because I think he calls it like it's like a man's secret like this is something only men talk about which I thought was cute. But then, but then the dad just like, you know, Judy Blue makes a point that the dad leaves the dishes in the sink. I'm like, come uh, on, yes. man. you couldn't just like <laughs> wash a dish. Yep. That I noticed that too, for sure. And I, I was, you know, that was shocking. Cause I'm like, oh my gosh, if I were away and I came home and like all the dishes were in the sink, I would be so annoyed. <laughs> right. Just like wash yeah, a dish. Like you can do like, just because you're a man who's working in an office, like you are capable of doing your own dishes. But then the mom comes home from her trip and like, I think there's a line that like she doesn't even comment on the dishes. Like she's just so happy to see fudge or something. <laughs> yeah, of course she yeah. is. So something that I loved about the mom and that I actually thought was kind of progressive by 1972 standards and maybe even by today's standards, because I, I'm not sure that this is a habit that all parents have, But their mom repeatedly apologizes to Peter for different things and comes to him when she feels like she's done something wrong. Because she is so overwhelmed with these kids, especially Fudge, who is a handful, she often finds herself like catering to Fudge rather than prioritizing Peter's needs. And that is frequently at Peter's expense. It's very hard for him. We'll talk specifically about some of these instances shortly, but I really appreciated the fact that on more than one occasion, after the fact, after Peter's upset, after his feelings are hurt, and he's kind of reflecting on his parents' behavior, his mom comes to find him and is like, look, I'm sorry, I was mad. I took it out on you, but I'm not mad at you. And I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, 
I loved that too. I thought she, I thought she was a really good mom in that sense for sure. Because I mean, like the part where she gets mad at Peter when Fudge jumps off the the rock and loses his teeth, and yeah. like that was just such a classic. Like I could really feel for Peter in that scene because it wasn't his fault. She had asked Sheila to to babysit while she went back to the apartment, and then like Sheila wasn't watching and Peter's the brother. So Peter got blamed when Fudge knocked his two front teeth out. And then, but I, I loved that, like the mom, you know, she really did kind of realize her mistake and like, she'd go back to Peter and, and be like, I'm sorry. I also, that <laughs> the scene about the teeth really hit home because my son, when he was right around his first birthday, he slipped in the bathtub and knocked out or chipped his two front teeth. <sighs> No. So they're not knocked out, but they are really chipped. And I'm like, I feel so guilty about it. <laughs> so when I was reading that, I was like, oh my gosh, I really, really relate to this, to the mom here. Yeah, because I guess the next steps there are just to like wait till he loses his baby teeth because he's going to get other teeth anyway. Like, is that the next move? Yeah, I mean, there's their baby teeth. So you could get them bonded or you could get like replacement teeth, but is it worth it? Yeah. Also like, yeah. Battle wounds. Yeah. And also, I mean, little kids, at the dentist at that age, like they're not going to sit still for the dentist. So they're not. And that's an excellent segue, Carola, because I think we should talk about some of Fudge's specific antics, one of which happens at the dentist. Yes. Dr. Brown, who, who likes the dentist? Nobody likes the dentist. Kids certainly do not like the dentist. Although I have very fond memories of my childhood dentist because he was like a specific kid's dentist. He only treated children and his office was so fun and colorful and he had a big um, treasure chest in the lobby that was full of like candy and little toys that you got to choose from after you had behaved during your appointment. So I will say any dentists or aspiring dentists out there you can make it fun for kids. I didn't hate the dentist that much because I always knew that I was going to go to the treasure chest when I was done. Oh, that like makes it all worth it to have something like that. To know that you're getting like a sticker or a lollipop. I love that. But I agree. I always dreaded the dentist. I still do. I mean, who likes the dentist? Well, that's because they need to find some adult equivalent of the treasure chest to put in the in the lobby. I often think about that when I'm waiting at the dentist because I... I really hate the dentist. Yeah. And when I'm sitting in the waiting room and like feeling so anxious, I'm like, what is out here waiting for me when I'm done to reward me for being a good girl? Like there's nothing and I have a problem with that. You're going to give me a baggie with some travel size toothpaste yeah. that's somehow going to get lost in my yeah. house and a toothbrush. Yeah. I know. They need to have like a cocktail waiting afterwards or something. <laughs> That sounds lovely. I love that idea. Again, dentists out there, we're giving you so many business ideas. Please let us know if you decide to implement any of them. Yeah. Although you're not really supposed to eat or drink sometimes after the dentist. So maybe you, I don't know, like what the adult equivalent of a treasure chest is, but. A to-go cup. A to-go cup. Yeah. That would work. So the hatchers go to the dentist and unsurprisingly, Fudge can't handle it. He's not cooperating. He's just not a cooperative kid. And I can't really blame him for that. He seems like a pretty typical two-year-old, like maybe a little rowdy, but my two-year-old nephew was visiting a couple of weeks ago and like he had some fudge in him. It doesn't seem like fudge is that outrageous. Yeah. But Peter isn't even supposed to get a checkup at the dentist. Like this is a fudge specific trip. 
and he is made to pretend that he is getting an exam just so that Fudge can watch how he behaves in the dentist chair. And I think as fellow oldest siblings, Carola, we can relate to Peter and say like, the injustice. Like, how dare you make me sit in this dentist chair and pretend to undergo this horrible dental exam just so that my little brother will behave himself. It's just not right. Yeah, no, completely. And the same thing happens with the toddle bike a few a few chapters oh later when like they're trying to get fudge to ride the bike for this commercial and they keep having to frame it like you can't fudge i bet you can't do this as well as peter which is so classic but yeah i just think that that must be you know peter's like he's not really old enough to like not let it get to him the frustration yeah like he's still a kid he's still yeah. a young kid and so i think that it's just yeah, he's he's constantly like feeling like like a martyr for his brother's sake. Like he has yeah. to go to the dentist and get his teeth examined. And so unfair. Yeah, I have some quotes about how Peter feels. He thinks to himself, it burns me the way people treat Fudge. He's not so special. He's just little, that's all. But someday he's going to be nine years old too. I can't wait until he is. Then he'll know there's nothing so great about him after all. He's so frustrated I think it speaks to like the inherent value of just being like cute and small. And I remember feeling that so deeply when I was like an awkward tween and my little sisters were like just coming into their most adorable phases. And I was like gangly and had glasses and a retainer and just like didn't know what to do with myself and wanted to have conversations about like books and I don't know, high school musical. And nobody wants to do that when there's a cute kid around who just like wants to run around. A hundred percent. I That quote, like, ugh, that definitely like tugged at my heartstrings because I feel that too. I definitely remember with my sister, her being five and a half years younger, like totally same as you just said. I mean, she was like this cute little toddler when I was Peter's age. And that's really hard. And, and also just thinking about my son too. I mean, he's, he's like a little younger than fudge. He's, he's about to turn two, but you know, he's definitely full of antics and he kind of gets away with anything because he's just, he's really young and cute and everyone's like, Ooh, like a baby. And that's, that's totally how it is with kids. And so I just, that I, I totally became like aware of that again and just kind of re-remembering how it felt to be in elementary school and to have like everyone kind of pay attention to my sister because she was the little cute one. Yeah. And I also in that moment, like wanted to say to Peter, like, I hate to break this to you, buddy, but when Fudge is nine, you're going to be 15 or 16. And then it, you know, the whole thing just continues to shift. And I think the dynamic between siblings is always so interesting in that, like at every age, I think there were things that were easier about me for my parents than they were for my sisters and vice versa. So I think like there were certainly things when I was 15 or 16 that like were more fun for my parents to do with me. But it's also, there's stuff that's like not cute about a 15 or 16 year old relative to a nine year old. And so, you know, in a very short sighted, like childlike way, Peter's like, oh, when he's nine and I'm nine, then he'll understand. And yeah. they both have so much life left to live. And I just, I love the way Judy Bloom writes about writes from a kid's perspective because nobody gets kids like Judy Bloom. Totally. And I really reading it that like you wonder how she does it because I don't, you know, my books are I write for adults, but 
it's really, she must just, she has such a gift to be able to like, just get inside the interior world of a child like that, like the way that she does. It's such a gift. I mean, for me now, like, I, I don't know about you, but I just feel so, I feel so removed from that part of my life. She must really still have such close access to it to be able to, to write stories like that. Yeah, she does have a gift. I will say that there's an author's note in this book where she talks about the inspiration for these characters. I believe Fudge was based on her son. And the inspiration for this book in particular came from her babysitter, her, her kid's babysitter, who brought to the house an article about a little boy who ate a turtle. And she thought that maybe it would be inspiring for Judy Bloom. And she was like, well, it was. And Judy actually initially wrote it as a picture book. And a few editors turned her down. A few of them told her that they were worried that it would influence kids of a picture book reading age to eat turtles. Oh, my gosh. Uh, which is, like, <laughs> so upsetting. And, like, poor Judy. Yeah. And ultimately, she had an editor suggest that she turn it into a chapter book. And when she did, like, I, I believe what she wrote in the author's note is that she only wrote it one time. Like, she didn't have to do rewrites on it or anything. She submitted it as is. She, she talks about how this was, like, the book that was easiest for her to write once she figured out the direction for it. And it's because she was inspired both by her kids and by this article from her babysitter. Interesting. I did not see that author's note in my copy. But that's so interesting because... I actually was like pretty alarmed by the turtle thing. I had forgotten about that. Yeah. I had completely forgotten that that happened in the book. And I I really can't believe that he swallows the turtle. That is like terrifying. <laughs> it's disturbing. Like as I was reading it, of course, you're like, oh, you know, poor Peter, his pet turtle dribble, it was eaten by his little brother. But then like I had to pause and be like, this kid ate a live turtle he's he just swallowed it like yes the mom makes a point to say oh did you chew it because she's freaking out and she's kind of trying to get to the bottom of what happened and fudge is like no i didn't chew it he just slurped it down and i don't know what would happen in real life if that happened to you and it's very disturbing to think about on a lot of levels completely and it also i mean it must have been i when i think of a turtle i think of that is being like something too big to swallow, but it must have been like a yeah, like a really small turtle, I guess. But same, like I don't yeah, I don't know what would actually happen if you swallowed. I mean, that's it's very that's like a hard shell. It's very scary. Yeah, and if it's a lot, like there's just so many details, and then the mechanics of passing the turtle, which Judy kind of yeah. dances around by talking about how at the hospital, like. They're giving Fudge lots of medicine and prune juice and milk of magnesia. And as adults, of course, we can fill in the blanks and understand, like, what is <laughs> expected to happen from all of these measures. And if that doesn't work, then they're going to have to operate on him, which honestly, like, sounds easier to me than waiting days and days in a hospital for a two-year-old to literally pass a turtle. Yes. But we thankfully aren't treated to too many of those details on the page. They're just waiting around in the hospital. And Peter's at home and he's really bummed out because... And this, again, is, like, such a sweet, childlike concern to have. Like, he's like, why is everybody so worried about Fudge and nobody cares about my turtle? I know. I felt so badly for him because he, the turtle is real, Dribble is really, like, such a big focus of the whole book. And he, yeah. like, is so, Peter is so dedicated to changing his, to cleaning out his bowl every Friday and cleaning the rocks and, like, making sure that Dribble has water and 
it just kind of broke my heart at the end. I'm like, oh my gosh, this, this toddler, his brother is like, (laughs) he's not only taking the attention of his parents constantly, but now he's like eaten this Peter's beloved turtle. And, but I thought it, I, I thought it was sweet when Peter, like he does get worried about fudge at the end. He's like, you know, he wasn't such a little, he's not such a bad little guy after all. But then the second that fudge comes home, Peter's like, oh, he's fine. And it's kind of annoyed about the turtle again. Well, and I really understood this part because he comes home and obviously like the most important thing is that he's okay and he's healthy and he's going to continue to be okay. Like we can say that's the most important thing and like check, check, check. But then Peter observes that he's getting all this special treatment because he was in the hospital and now he can eat whatever he wants and he's like being cuddled and coddled and snuggled and like spoiled even more than usual. And again, not a parent, so I can't speak to how this should actually work. But I think that from Peter's perspective, it's like, yes, great, cool, fun, he's healthy, but also like he misbehaved. Like he did something wrong. And I think as an oldest child, my instinct especially when I was growing up, was always like, is this allowed? Yeah. And if it's not allowed, then why is nobody talking about how it's not allowed? I'm sure that their parents never thought that they had to like explicitly explain that eating a turtle is not allowed. But eating a turtle is not allowed. And especially eating your brother's pet turtle is not allowed. And Peter is so upset by the injustice of this. You know, not only is Fudge not being punished for for this injustice, but he's kind of being rewarded because now that he's home and safe, he's getting totally spoiled. Totally. And that's why I loved the last, the last, last final scene when the dad comes home and has the puppy for Peter. And, And the dad says like, Fudge, this is your brother's dog. And Fudge is like Peter's dog. And I liked that. It was, it was, you know, somewhat satisfying, but I think that I don't know. Again, as a as a mom now, like if that if something like that happened to my son, just knowing myself, I would totally be like coddling him and spoiling him even though he misbehaved because I'd be so worried about him, you know? Yeah, I'm sure. It's very complicated, but like I I don't want to upset any reptile fans out there. I think turtles are reptiles or are they amphibians? I don't know. Either way, <laughs> No offense to lovers of reptiles and or amphibians, but I personally would much rather have a puppy. So I think that Peter certainly came out on top with that one. I do too. Although I was sad for Dribble. Yeah. All right, Dribble. He seemed like a nice pet. Seemed like a good turtle. (laughs) I want to touch on on group projects because group projects are also explored in this book in a way that I found very satisfying. As a former Sheila the Great, I would say, Peter and his friend Jimmy are paired with Sheila, their neighbor, for a group project. And of course, this is like horrible to them because they don't want to have to work with Sheila. She's annoying and a girl. And Sheila is so frustrated with them because they are not contributing in the way that she thinks is fair. And it just brought me back to like how frustrating group projects were. And I was a stickler for rules. I always wanted to get a good grade. And when I was paired with people like Peter and Jimmy, I totally would have been a Sheila and I would have been frustrated. And and their focus on credit and who gets credit for what I thought was so interesting. Like whose name is on what parts of the project? What handwriting is the teacher going to see on what parts of the project? That was so important to them. Yes, totally. That like took me back too, because I remember now like group projects and you get assigned and you don't always like who you're assigned with. I mean, I personally am just someone who... I like to do things myself. (laughs) 
That's why you're an author. <laughs> yes. But I was actually, I was listening to your episode with Colleen and you guys were talking about, you were talking about how authors, because I think the book that she had read for your episode was like co-written by two authors. And I was listening to that and like how you guys were talking about how hard it would be to write a book together, which is a side note, but I totally agree. Like, I think it would, I'm so in awe of authors that co-write books. I think it would be so hard, but just, yes, in general, like doing, I remember that from school, like doing a project with anyone. I don't know. It just, unless it's like your best friend, it was kind of a drag. Yeah. And then of course, Fudge causes problems by stealing Peter's poster and drawing all over it. And there was a conversation in that little episode about locks on doors that I remember from my own childhood where like, I believe there were locks on the doors in my house Yeah, just when we moved in. But my parents were like very, very clear about the fact that nobody was to lock their doors. Same. And I, of course, as the oldest, never had tantrums. I mean, I was also like much older than my than my siblings. But when my sisters would get mad at my parents and like stomp up the stairs and into their rooms. If they locked their doors, they would get in big trouble. And that's kind of where the hatchers are coming from too. Peter is frustrated that he can't lock his door. And like, that's why Fudge got to the poster and ruined it in the first place. But his parents are like, we're a family. We shouldn't have to have locks on the doors. But I, I was happy for Peter when their dad put a little lock on the door because he realized like, we can't really have Fudge just loose around this apartment. Yeah, me too. And I remember the same thing. Like I had a lock on my door. It was a lock from the inside. And I would get, you know, I would get really mad and frustrated like Peter as the oldest. And I would sometimes like run to my room and lock the door. And I remember my parents used to get really mad and be like, it's dangerous. Don't lock your door. Like, what if you locked your door and then we needed to get in? So I know we were, I was like forbidden to lock my door, but I would still do it anyway sometimes. But yes, I was... I was happy for Peter yeah, too, because Fudge just like getting up in all of his stuff all the time. He's reckless. Reckless is the word I would use for him. So everybody who listens to this podcast knows that I worship Judy Bloom. That's not a mystery, but even perfect people make mistakes sometimes. And I just want to take a moment to discuss something that I didn't love so much in this book. And I hate to say this, but it is a pattern in Judy's work. It's something that we've talked about in other episodes. I've read think pieces about it. I'm not the first person to come up with this. But in these older books in particular, there is a bit of a tendency toward fat phobia that I always want to call out. Weird to me that one of Fudge's friends, who is a literal baby, he's a baby, is described not once, not twice, but like multiple times as fat. And of course, in 2022, we are thankfully moving, I think, in a direction where the word fat isn't an insult and doesn't have any sort of loaded nature to it. But in 1972, and for many decades since then, fat is not a nice word. Fat is a word that I certainly as a kid was taught not to use, was taught to be afraid of. I'm trying to work through that now, I think, with the rest of society and just it's a word. It's a word that can be used to describe somebody. But Judy Bloom in 1972 was not was not using it from that kind of a neutral place. And I just wanted to note that like it's bizarre to me to describe a toddler several times with, with that kind of a loaded word. That is so true. I And now that you say it, I'm remembering that scene with Fudge's friends. That is so true. It, it is that and yeah. that I agree. I'm a huge Judy Bloom fan. But that is 
definitely alarming. And also like, I think, I mean, I think it's like really not that there's anything wrong with being like overweight at any time in your life. But I also feel like with a baby and with a toddler, it's, it's like so cute when they're chubby and they all kind of all are chubby. <laughs> yeah. It was like a weird thing yeah. for me. And I, I, I didn't necessarily read even true to the character of Peter. Like, I don't know that a nine-year-old boy would necessarily clock that a two-year-old is fat. Like that just no. didn't see, it didn't make sense. And then to sort of tease him about it, even if it's just internally, I think he actually jokes about it with his mom and the grandma too. Like it's a joke, which I didn't love. Yeah. Um, all babies are a little chunky. Yeah, I love it. Too chunky. It's adorable. Yeah. So, and, and this is something that has come up in her other books too. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think sort of that category of books that you we were talking about earlier, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, Deanie. I think it comes up actually a lot in Deanie. Um, we haven't done Blubber on the show yet. And I didn't read that one as a kid, but I know that it's a big problem in in blubber as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think Judy just has this tendency to sometimes use descriptors in a way that feels loaded and offensive and problematic to our 2022 eyes or our sensibilities. Yeah. And I think that there's just sometimes more of a focus on weight, particularly with teen and preteen girls, than feels comfy for us today. Because as somebody who lived through like the 90s and early aughts and consumed media that often didn't make me feel good in my body. I can say now that word choice like that is not great for anyone. Totally. And I think, I mean, we've obviously come a long way, but it's been, you know, decades since I've read, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. I definitely read Blubber and Deanie too. And I would love to go back and reread them because now that you're like saying this, I am sort of remembering I, I just remember what you're talking about a little bit, not specifically, but I remember there being like comments about, you know, girls' bodies, which is a really sensitive thing to talk about, like to call an adolescent or any girl, but like, especially during adolescence to refer to like fatness or, or being chunky. Like, I think that that's, yeah. I mean, that's something that would not, again, like would not appear in, in a YA or, or children or youth, children's book today. Judy, we love you. We love we know you. That you weren't the only one doing this. We know this wasn't your idea, but it's it's good for us to talk about it in 2022. Yeah. Carola, on the whole, how do you think that Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing held up to your expectations of it, held up to your memories of it? Did it hold up? Did it disappoint you? Tell me everything. So it's funny. I I remember I remember the book feeling so much longer when I was younger, which I guess makes sense. And I was thinking like, oh, this is gonna, you know, this is my book that I'll read this week. And I literally read it. I read it in like one car ride. <laughs> like it was like so quick. Yeah. And I, which which was kind of funny and, and fun to experience. But I I really loved reread again. I mean, it's, it's definitely, you know, a little dated in, in parts like we've talked about, but I think that it, the feeling of like, of Peter's frustrations as a fourth grader, like Judy Bloom really captures something universal, even though she was writing in the 70s and now we're in 2022. Like I think that that, that those feelings of of frustration and you know frustration, but also this deep love for your family and confusion is just so universal. And it really took me back and it made me, it made me feel really excited to like 
read these books with my own kids as they grow up. That's something that I like, I'm really looking forward to, but I just think that, you know, even though, even though there are problematic parts of her writing and really any, probably any piece of writing that you find from 50 years ago, there's something really lasting and iconic and transcendent about the story that she tells and like the stories that she tells of Fudge and Peter, which I think it goes to show. It's why so many people around the world still read these stories. Elementary school kids still read these stories and appreciate them and see themselves in them and and find connection with these characters. And I think that that's really incredible. Yeah, absolutely. You said it so well. And I I think that what you said about like the love of family, it's worth kind of doubling down on because I do think what's interesting about this book is like it speaks to that thing about family where you're like, oh, my family is so weird and so annoying. But like, this is our weird and annoying. And like, it's our special brand of annoying family drama and frustration and that you sort of take pride in it and you love that. And that kind of like cements all of your childhood memories. So I love that you said that. Other than Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing, which you read in a single car ride, what have you been reading lately, Carola, that you would recommend to our listeners? So I just finished reading this book that was incredible. It's called Notes on an Execution by Danya. Have you read it? Danya's been on the oh, show. She has. Okay, so yeah. she, I just read her book and it was, it's, I read it actually when I was on the beach and it's not a beach read. It's a pretty intense book. It's about a serial killer who's on death row and it explores like, it basically explores his backstory through three different women in his life, his ex-wife, his mother. uh, Oh, and the detective that's like trying to find him. And it was just a really beautifully written, like very powerful book about humanity about nature versus nurture. I I loved it. Even though it's a more serious book, like I still couldn't put it down. I read it in two days. One of my favorites this year has been, I I keep recommending it is a book called The Love of My Life by Rosie Walsh. Um, She wrote a book called Ghosted that came out a few years ago. And this is, I think this is her second book, but it's, it's a suspense. It's a really beautiful love story. It just sort of had a bunch of different genres that I love meshed into one. And I, I loved that book. And then there's a book called a novel obsession by Caitlin Barash that I flew through that I loved. I read it a few months ago, but it's really stuck with me. It's very psychological. It's about a, I think a, a, the woman in the book is in her late twenties and she wants to be a writer and she ends up stalking her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend for inspiration because her boyfriend's ex is an editor and it's just really entertaining and psychological and well-written and then Colleen McKeegan's book I loved too the wild one shout out, shout out. <laughs> the wild one we actually had the same pub date June 14 and we didn't we got to do an event together at a bookstore which was really fun and I Colleen's book is just a great suspense coming of age story takes place part of it takes place at a summer camp so it just has great like summer vibes loved that one so I would say those four have probably been my favorites this year thank you I'll include links to all of those in the show notes and listeners if you're listening to this the day it goes live or the week it goes live and you're in the Philadelphia area 
I'm actually doing an event with Colleen for the wild one on Wednesday. I guess it will be the 10th of August at Booked in Chestnut Hill. So come hang out with us. I'll make sure you have the info to register because that will be a lot of fun. But Carola, speaking of pub dates and June 14th, you have a new book that's out there and it has been everywhere getting rave reviews. Tell me about Can't Look Away. Tell me what inspired it and anything else that you want to share. Yeah. Um, so Can't Look Away is my third novel and it's about, it's, I'm kind of calling it a romantic suspense. It's part love story, part suspense, part domestic fiction. And it's kind of like a, a mashup of those genres. And Can't Look Away is about a woman named Molly and her story is told in two different timelines. So in the first timeline, she is in her early early 20s. She's living in New York, has just gotten her MFA and she wants to be a writer. She meets a guy named Jake around this time. And Jake is a musician. He's in a band called Danner Lane that's getting more and more famous around the city. And she and Jake fall in love. They think they're gonna be together forever. And so that timeline is is about their story, their relationship. Flash forward nine years later, the second timeline is present day, 2022. And Molly is in her early 30s, living in a fictional Connecticut suburb called Flynn Cove. And she is married to a different guy. So right off the bat, you know, she's not ended up with Jake. She's married to a man named Hunter. They have a five-year-old daughter and are trying really hard to get pregnant with their second baby. And these two timelines flash back, like interspersed chapters. So in the in the present day timeline, Molly is, she's kind of lost. She's not writing anymore. She's not fulfilled professionally. She's having a hard time making friends in this town where she lives. But she meets a woman named Sabrina, who is a newcomer to Flynn Cove, to this town. And she and Sabrina hit it off really fast, become really fast friends. And Molly's super excited about this new friendship in her life. But then there's a third kind of perspective that is told from Sabrina's eyes. And through Sabrina's chapters, we learn that Sabrina is not who she tells Molly she is. She has her own motivations, her own reasons for moving to this suburb, for becoming friends with Molly. And her Sabrina's chapters are really where like the suspense of the book comes in. And so without giving too much away, Molly's past begins to catch up with her present and these three narratives kind of weave together to tell the story. So yeah, it's, I mean, I hope that it's an entertaining read for the summer that readers can escape with on a beach or lake or wherever. I mean, I really hope that it's, that it's something fun and enjoyable for the summer months and, and I'm excited about it. Well, congratulations on it. I have heard and seen nothing but amazing things. And listeners, if you have not read Can't Look Away, go get yourself a copy. You will find a link to it in the show notes of this week's episode. And I'll shout out to it on social media as well. Carola, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Allie. This was so much fun. And I really appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Anytime. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. 
And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>